Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4, beginning chapter 4 this morning. We've been walking through Galatians for a couple months now, and we're in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. If you have a Bible, if you don't, the words will be up on the screen for you. But this is the word of the Lord, starting in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, your people are gathered around your word now. And we know that that is a potent reality. When you have your people gathered and your word opened. And so God, we pray that you would pour forth power. God, we, we are so much like the, a man you encountered in the Gospels. Who says, I believe, help my unbelief. Before us is your word, God. There are parts of it that we, we believe and we're grabbing a hold of, but there's so much unbelief in us. And so, God, oh, help our unbelief this morning. And God, be honored in, in, your, in our time, in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Paul has spent the last part of chapter 3 showing us and, and explaining to us the function of the law. What was it meant for? Why is it around? Because the, there were opponents in the churches of Galatia that were saying, you need the law in order to be justified before God, and He has beat down that door, that you could only be justified by your faith in Jesus Christ, and not by your own works and the things that you can do on your own. Anything that you can come up with will not be able to put you in right relationship with God apart from your belief in Jesus. And so then he says, well, why then the law? What do, we, what do we need to say about the law? Why was it given? What is its purpose? What's its function? And so Paul has been working toward showing us the purpose and the function of the law, that it adds to our sin. And that it reveals our sin, that we don't stack up to God's high standard. It, it even stirs up sin within us. And Paul says, I, did, I wouldn't have coveted until I knew what it was to covet. And then all of a sudden it stirred up my sinful nature and I was coveting. So it stirs up our sin. It's adding transgression. But last week we talked about how it, it's, it's meant to point us onward. That we were never meant to stop with the law. That it was meant to keep us entrapped, imprisoned, until we were able to be turned over to Jesus. And then the gospel gets its say. And so at the end of chapter 3, he started kind of shifting a little bit from, from the function of the law to now who you are in light of the promises of God, in light of the function of the law. Here's who you are. And he started to say that you, as if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ, then you're a son of God. And here as we begin chapter 4, he's going to reassert that again. Now that God has made you a son, he's going to say, don't turn back to your former way of life. The life that you had before. 
And so Paul is going to remind them of who they once were, that they were slaves. And he's going to again look at what Jesus has accomplished for them in their slavery to pull them out of it. And so in chapter 4, as we read, you can see that he's using another illustration, another analogy. He's shifting it slightly, but he's trying to, once again, help them to see things clearly because they were under a spell, as it were. He said, are you bewitched by these opponents that have come in and started teaching these strange things? And so he says, verse 1, he's using another analogy to pull them out of that bewitchment. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So the shift analogy here, but but you can get the idea that there's a son who would be the heir of all things. The, The son would receive the inheritance from his father. It would be passed down to him, but not until maturity. He had to get to that point where he could get the inheritance. He didn't just receive it for just being the son. He had to reach a certain point where you were of age, where you could handle the inheritance that it would be passed down to you. So he says, until you get to that point, your your status, your standing is, is almost equal to a slave. Although you're the heir, you don't have any access to the inheritance. Your freedom is restricted because you're under a guardian. You're under watch until you reach a certain point. That you have no access to your inheritance until you come of age. And so legally you're the heir, but but you don't have the power to actually get the inheritance on your own. You need someone to bestow it upon you. And so he continues, verse 2, But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So the father wants the son to have everything. There's an until here, right? He doesn't want him to to stay in this this immature state where he's under a guardian forever. He wants him to be turned over. There's an until, but but he's got to reach maturity. I I couldn't help but think of of Billy Madison this week. Here's the son. He's an heir of of this fortune in his family and of this business. But it's like he is is under slavery because he knows nothing and he just wants to waste his life goofing off, right? And this is what he's, he's getting at. Like, there's supposed to be an until where you're going to move on and receive the inheritance. And that's what the father actually wants. But you've got to reach maturity. You don't just get there uh, by doing whatever. And so the son would have to be properly trained. And would have to come of age so that they could be ready to not blow the inheritance. To not waste the fortune that's there. And so then Paul's going to bring it home, right? Bring it to us. Apply it to the situation. Because the, the law is supposed to work the same way. It's supposed to turn us over, prepare us, get us ready so that we reach maturity, so that we can receive the promises and the inheritance. And so verse 3, he, he likens it. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now I want us to notice the we that Paul uses here, because Paul is lumping together quite a few people when he says that word we. He is including both Jews, likely his opponents were Jewish, and were saying you need to obey the law and, and get circumcised, all these things. Paul himself is a Jewish man, highly steeped in the law, lived that life for quite a long time, building his, his identity, his belonging, all those things on the law and on his keeping of the law. But he's also including his Galatian readers who are mostly Gentiles. And so Paul is lumping quite a few people together here, and he says of all of them that we were all enslaved. Enslaved. To what? He says, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, there is a huge debate about what this actually means. And it seems like a strange phrase to just put out there. But the most common reading is to say that it makes the elementary principles of the world is just what makes up the world. So we have earth and air and fire, whatever makes up the world, that that seems to be the most common way of taking this phrase. 
So if that's what it means, and, and I think that it could denote, that just kind of the idea would be that the present world order, the things that are, are here that are kind of running around. Now, there's connotations, I think, behind this here, and you see it again in Colossians. Paul uses the same phrase. That kind of thinks of the present world order with demonic powers stirring things up behind the scenes that we, we don't get a look at and see. And so I think that there's something to that here as well. So it means, it seems to think it means that it's, it's the present world order, possibly with some demons working around here as well. Luther simply says it as earthly. I think that's a good way of putting it as well. Earthly. And so while we don't know exactly what that means, you can't pinpoint it precisely or as precisely as we Americans would like, what can't be confused is he says that we were what? Enslaved. That one is not unclear whatsoever. He is saying both Jews and Gentiles, Paul himself, the we here that he's talking to, we were all enslaved. And so what's interesting is Paul says that, is that we were enslaved to, to some former things. Paul is including his life under the law, the Gentiles' life under whatever sort of paganism they were in, they're all, he says, were enslaved. And then they were enslaved to these elementary principles of the world. In other words, the law is in the same category now as, as paganism or idolatry of some sort. They're all in the same category. And he says, you're all enslaved. All of them were under the dominion of the present world order, and rather it be in, in different forms, uh, paganism or legalism, or whatever form of idolatry you want to take on, all of them, he says, we were all enslaved. And so this means that to propose that they could be justified by the law is the same as saying that you could be justified by the way you were living before you heard the gospel. That is to say, you can't be justified. To say that you can be justified by the law is the same as saying that you can be justified by your life in paganism. He says, no, both of those are enslavement. Clearly, this is something that Paul thinks that they ought to move beyond. Grow out of. Opponents are saying, you've come a long way, you've believed in Jesus, now get circumcised, do some of these laws, and then you've made it. And Paul is saying, that's like an heir who can't ever receive the inheritance. That's of slaves what that is. And so their acceptance of circumcision, their acceptance of the law is not progress. It's going back to who they were before. It's going back to their enslavement. It's going back to their trying to be justified in their own living. They were enslaved, unable to receive the promises of God, unable to receive the inheritance. And Paul says, you're moving back in that direction. So it's important that you remember who you were and what it was like when you were there. And the truth is for us as well, no matter how long we've been a Christian... We were once there as well. We too were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were slaves, all of us, to our greatest desires. None of which were to honor the Lord. None of which were to give Him all praise and glory and honor that He deserves. No, we walked in sin. Paul says that we were following the prince of the power of the air. Paul says that we were hostile in our minds, that we were doing evil deeds. We were enslaved. And so the, the law and good works and our best efforts and our greatest church attendance, all those things couldn't release us from being enslaved. And whether you were enslaved to your religion or you're enslaved to your irreligion, either one of them, Paul is saying they're both enslavements. And we can quickly forget about our own enslavement, forgetting who we were and where we were. And, and that seems innocent enough. But it's a problem because it's one of the ways that we use to deny our need for God. And it reveals our own self-sufficiency. 
Forgetting who we were and what we were and where we were as slaves can deny our need for God and reveal our own self-sufficiency. And so if we weren't slaves, then we didn't need someone to come and release us and to open up the prison doors. If we weren't slaves, then maybe we could get out on our own. All we got to do is just use our own efforts and pull ourselves up and let's go forward. If we weren't slaves, then maybe we could improve on our own standing by doing some good performance. No, no, no. The Bible is really clear that we were enslaved with no justification, no promises from God, no inheritance. Couldn't get to any of them. And so remembering who we were and where we were makes a big difference. And it makes a big difference moving forward and not being bewitched or put under a spell by some that would come in and teach otherwise. Galatians were forgetting that they used to be under the dominion of the world and that contributed to where they were at the time that Paul is writing. And so three chapters in, and Paul says, this is who you were. And he knows that that matters to his entire argument. Who they think they were is going to affect how they take the next verse, and us too. Who we think we were is going to affect how we read verse 4. But, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The fullness of time just reminds us of the the infinite wisdom of God. That He knows the exact and precise time for which to send forth His Son. It was the peak of salvation history and it all had come in Jesus. All the covenants that God had made. All the promises that He made. All the anticipation. All the prophets. All the longing. Everything was building up until this climactic moment when Jesus was sent forth. Jesus' coming changed everything. Here in Jesus we have the new Adam. The better Adam. Here in Jesus we have this offspring of Abraham that we've talked so much about. Here we have the fulfillment of all the law that no one else could fulfill. Here we have David's seed come to reign and rule over all. And we could go on and on and on. And this is the the fullness of time. And it's not speaking so much about what was going on so that this was the best date for Jesus to come. The idea here is this is the culmination of all that God has been doing from the beginning to the point of Jesus' coming. And in the fullness of time, Jesus was sent. God sent His Son. It reminds us of the will of our perfect Creator and Father God. That He wants to send forth a Redeemer. In other words, He wants people that are in prison to be free. He wants those who are slaves to be sons. And who better to send for this mission than His own Son? And so He sends Him. No one, think about this, no one forces God's hand. No one else came up with this plan. Like this is God's plan, God's will, God's desire. No one forced His hand and we're reminded... In John chapter 3, verse 16, a verse that many know of some of the motivation that God has for sending His Son, for He so loved the world. And we could go into that too, like why does He love the world? Not because there's some sort of lovable quality in the world. He loves the world because that's who He is. He is love. And out of His love for that world, He sends His Son. He gives You don't want to miss in that verse when he says world that he's not speaking about humanity that's kind of neutral and okay with God or maybe not, but just kind of a little bit back. No, he's talking about a world that's sinful, talking about a world that's in rebellion to him. This is why later when John writes in 1 John, he says, don't love the world because it's in rebellion to God. And yet it's that rebellious world that God sends his son into. 
All of us were fighting against the law, not to fulfill it. All of us were living according to our own way, not according to God's way. And that is where He sends His Son, into the mess of humanity. Jesus was sent. Now that's not to say that Jesus was coerced into this, like, they're a mess, Jesus. Will you please, I'm going to send you, I know, I know, but please, like, I'm going to send, that's not how it was happening whatsoever. Here Jesus is sent, elsewhere He comes, He came. In other words, the, the will of the Father and the will of the Son and their desire and their mission and their heart are all the same. Even at the end, when Jesus knows that He's going to be nailed to a piece of wood, He embraces the Father's will with total willingness. So we continue. God sends His Son and He sends Him, born of a woman, born under the law. And so the Son, the eternal Word of God, God Himself, comes. Born of a woman. Born, every word, like born. God was born. Born of a woman. God was born of a woman. He became man. In other words, Jesus, who is eternal God, added to His deity, He added to it humanity. And so now we have one who is both fully God and now fully man, born of a woman. He became man. And it also says that He was born under the law. Now that is an interesting way to say it. Born under the law. Because we know, according to Galatians, that everyone born under the law is imprisoned. That everyone born under the law is now born under a curse. Because we, in our sinful nature, cannot fulfill this law. And so it's interesting to say that Jesus was born under the law. Because every single one that has been born under the law is under the dominion of the law. Is under the dominion of sin. But Jesus comes, born under the law. And He comes as the firstborn of the new creation. And as the firstborn of the new creation, He's the exception to this, in that He doesn't have to be born under the law and that He's under its dominion because He perfectly fulfills it. The earliest view we see of Jesus is not of Him throwing rocks at donkeys or making fun of people from Samaria. It's of Him in His Father's house. And He speaks with great wisdom and authority even. So He comes under the law. And His fulfillment of the law as a man is important because He came with a purpose. Verse 5, He came to redeem those who were under the law. One commentator said it so well. He said that He entered into the prison house where His people were held in bondage so as to set them free. And Jesus could free those imprisoned under the law because He could fulfill the law. He could remain free from sin and perfectly carry out to the T the law that God had required. As the sinless one, Jesus then has the the ability, the opportunity to be a substitutionary sacrifice for others. He could actually bear the curse of the law because He has no curse that's directed at Him. And so He bears the curse of the law. He could be this sacrifice, this lamb without blemish, because He had no blemish. He could represent the people because He was born of a woman. He could represent God because He was God. He could pay for sin then. This is what it means that He came to redeem those under the law. He came to pay their price with His life. Why did He do this? Verse 5, So that we might receive adoption 
as sons. God sends His Son to redeem those imprisoned so that He could welcome them in all the way in as sons. All were included or indebted to God and and Jesus had to pay that debt. He had to make a sacrifice for sins. But Jesus doesn't just pay that debt to kind of, now you are even, now go from here and hopefully you go in the positive direction. No, He pays their debt and then brings them all the way into the house, full inclusion with Him. Now, they're out of slavery and into sonship. Out of bondage, into freedom. Out of this idea of being indebted to God, to being full heirs already. Now, now this is information that shouldn't be new to the Galatians. Maybe He's adding on to some things that He's already told them. But this is the Gospel message. This is the good news that He proclaimed to them when He visited them in the book of Acts. He is showing them something that they should know already, and and we should know it as well. But the thing is, is that we have to remember it. And that's important. They're being led astray into thinking that to really be a part of God's family, you have to be circumcised, or you have to follow parts of the law. And Paul's saying... You're a part of the family through the redemption that's in Jesus. He adopted you. You're not going to be able to add to that. He came to redeem those under the law that couldn't get out from the law. He came to buy them out of that. What more can be added from the redemption that you got from Jesus? This is a question to them. The thought that something could be added to their redemption, their adoption, is the problem. If we think we can add something onto that, that there's something better out there for us than adoption by the Son unto the Father, then then there's something wrong in our hearts. And one of their struggles was remembering what Jesus had accomplished, that He had brought them from slavery into sonhood, that He had brought them from slavery into sonhood. One of Pastor Jim's favorite movies is The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a great movie if you ever get a chance to watch it. I'll give you a quick rundown of the movie. It's long. I think the book is longer. I've not touched it because it's huge. Edmund Dantes is kind of unjustly put into prison. Something else was, was put on him to protect other people. So he's put in prison, tucked away where no one can find him or hear of him ever again. He meets an old man in there who teaches him a lot of things. Gives him a treasure map. All sorts of fun stuff. They dig their way out, kind of. He escapes this prison. He follows this treasure map and, and, and gets access to countless riches, right? He, he has all that he could ever need to not just live nicely, but to live luxuriously for the rest of his life and carry out any plans that he has. His plans happen to be a, a lot of revenge over the people that had wronged him in his life. He starts to, to go about this plan, and what he does, he, he buys this luxurious house, and he has this luxurious stuff in it. He looks the part of someone who is really rich and famous and wealthy, and even kind of builds up that persona. But there's an interesting scene in there where his, his trusty sidekick, Jacopo, comes into his room in the early morning hours and, and wakes him up, and he finds that Edmund Dantes is sleeping on the floor... Right next to this luxurious bed. Right? You probably have the best sheets around. It's the best bed that that money could buy. And you're sleeping on the floor. And he says this. Did you fall off the bed? Years after being out of prison where he had to sleep on a, a cold, hard floor. Years of that. Now you have access to the 
this bed, right? You, this luxury, this is the best bed that money can buy. And you choose to sleep on the floor. Did you fall off? It's a good question. Years after being out of prison, you decide still to sleep on the floor. And in trying to seek justification through circumcision or through law-keeping or through some sort of doing, is, is just like that. You are forgetting that you belong in the bed. You, you don't have to sleep in the floor anymore. You're not, you're not in prison anymore. You've been set free. You've been included in the house. The, the bed is yours. Like, jump in it and enjoy all its luxuries. And church, are we any different? Don't we still struggle to remember what Jesus has accomplished for us? Do we not struggle with the thought that, that maybe we weren't that bad to begin with, and so maybe we didn't need Jesus as much as He says we do? Or do we not struggle thinking that somehow I can contribute to my own justification? Do we not struggle to, to, with the truth that we're accepted fully by God, that we're forgiven, that we're no longer under a curse, that we're truly adopted as sons? We struggle with sleeping on the floor when the bed is before us and we're totally welcome to it. And we have to breathe deeply in the work of Jesus. The one who was sent, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that they might be adopted as sons. This is the truth that calms our justification by whatever we have. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Calms that. I don't need to be justified that way. Jesus justifies me. This is the truth that, that cuts down our pride, that likes to say, ah, things weren't that bad. Or maybe I contributed to this, it cuts all those things away, it says, no, I was in prison and Jesus set me free. This is the truth that stills all of our insecurities. Am I forgiven? Have I done enough? No, Jesus did enough for me. I'm forgiven in Him. We're no longer prisoners, we're sons. We don't have to sleep on the floor anymore. We have all access to the bed. And we can't be more accepted than we are in Jesus. And this adoption, it's not just for a few elites. Not just for someone that, that, that does the right things. Notice the language again. It's really specific. But Paul again says that we might receive adoption as sons. We. There's full inclusion then, not just for some elites like Paul who carried out the law and is born as a Jewish man. No, there's a we for all the pagan Gentile Christians in Galatia. This we is, is a full inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles. That God, it seems, would have nothing less in His will and His desires than full inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles from all over the place. That is, Jesus came to redeem, and He didn't limit how far that redemption was going to reach in the world, or didn't limit it based on what social class you're from, or what ethnicity that He came to redeem. And that is stretching. And it still stretches today to those anywhere who would call upon the name of our Lord. That includes the religious in Dragontown, the irreligious in Corinth, the slave, the free, the Jew, the Gentile, the man, the woman, all of them, if they place their faith in Jesus, are now sons. Adopted. Fully in. But how can anyone know if they're a son? Now maybe that's a question that's haunted you in your life. How can I really know that I'm a son of God? How can I know that I'm included? How can I know that I belong? How can I know that I'm forgiven? I think there's lots of voices that you could listen to in that debate. When you ask those kind of questions, there's all sorts of things that come to your head. 
There's voices from outside. There's lots of them from inside. But Paul points to one that I think is definitive. In verse 6, he says this, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I just want to look at the, the beautiful working of the Trinity here. That the Father sins... That the Son goes out to redeem and that the Holy Spirit comes in to cry out. In other words, we have the fullness of God at work to to give us adoption as sons. They are all exerting their power to take orphaned ones and make them sons of God. All of God is doing that. So the Father sent and He sends the Son to redeem. And the Son is out redeeming, bringing people out from their slavery into sonship. And then the Spirit is sent to reside in believers who have trusted in that redemption that was in the Son. And he says, this is the Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Now when we hear that, we, we probably go a lot of different ways in our head. We think of Abba, that's, we, it sounds like almost like a, a cute cooing from a baby, right? That, that would have been one of the... the the phrases, the things that they would have had early. We have Dada, they have Abba. So their, their syllables are a little bit different than ours, but it's, it's kind of like that, right? It seems like that. Or maybe Abba, and you see this often in books or, or different ways. They, they think of Abba, it's almost like a cute way of saying father. He, uh, it's, it's close. We say Abba, we don't say father. That's so, oh, like, man, that seems so hierarchical. And I, I, I'm closer than that. So it seems like either cute cooing or maybe a playful take on father. But Paul says that the Spirit cries out. And, and, and cries is the right way to translate that. Because it's sincere. It says there's a depth to it. And it's loud. It's not silent. It's not just like, oh, the Father. No, it's not. It's, it's sincere and it's loud. In other words, this is a word that the blind beggar uses in Luke 18 to cry out for help. He doesn't just say, help, help. No, he's crying out for help. Like, help me. This is the same cry that the crowd uses upon Jesus in Matthew chapter 20 when they cry out, crucify Him. That's the kind of crying that we're talking about here when we're talking about the Spirit crying out. Jesus even cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see this in Mark chapter 14. He cries out and even cries out, Abba. So in other words, this is truly the Spirit of the Son crying out. And so whatever Paul has in mind when he says that the Spirit is crying Abba, it can't be just cute cooing. It's not just a a playful take on Father. One author, Sinclair Ferguson, writes some really helpful stuff on this, so I'm going to quote him at length here, because I thought it was so helpful for me. He says, Paul therefore seems to have in mind a loud cry that issues from a situation of great need. Abba, Father, is not a restful whisper of contentment and security. It is the cry of a child who has stumbled, tripped, and fallen, and is crying out for his or her father to come to help. It's the deepest instinct of the child in need. Do you know when I hear daddy the loudest and the clearest? It's not when they want to say, I love you. It's when they're hurt. It's when they're in need. It's when they've had some sort of crazy injustice upon them from their sibling. That's when I hear it. The loudest and the clearest. It's instinct. Daddy! They know that when they're hurt, that when they can't get out of a situation, and when they need help desperately, that they don't need to cry out, Help! Why? 
Because they need their daddy. Believers are like that. We don't just cry out help in general, but by the power of the Spirit we instinctively cry out, Father! Ferguson continues, At best, such a person may and often does cry out, Oh God! But not instinctively, Oh Father! That cry is the fruit of the ministry of the Spirit. It is His co-testimony with our spirit. That even in the hour of darkness, the believer possesses an instinct, a testimony. He or she knows him or herself to be a child of God. Do you instinctively cry out to God? Do you know the closeness in relationship with God because you've cried out? This is such good news because we're given assurance even and maybe even especially when we're not strong. Or when our performance isn't good. Or when we've sinned again. Or when we've failed to live up to His standards again. He continues one more time. What good father would want his children's assurance of his love to be possible only when they have sufficient accomplishments in life to merit it? Shame on such a father. Yet how sad that we impute such an attitude to our Heavenly Father. It's not what it's like to cry out, Abba, Father. It's in your weakness and despair, your need. You instinctively cry out by the power of the Spirit, Abba, Father. It's not when you're getting things right and say, Oh God, I'm just so thankful for you and I would pray. No, it's a, it's a crying out inside you that you don't even know how where it comes from. It just bellows out because the Spirit's in there. And this is one of the main reasons that the Spirit is given. If you were to be asked... What are the roles of the Spirit? A lot of us would go straight to gifts. We know that the Spirit gives us gifts and that we're supposed to carry out these gifts. Or or you think about the Spirit's empowering and it's going to allow us to do all these things. But often we don't think of assurance. And God gives us the Spirit to give us assurance that we are sons. Not slaves, sons, heirs. This is what he says in Ephesians, that in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. God wants us to know who we are because of what Jesus has done, and He sends the Spirit that we may not miss it. Do we know what Jesus has accomplished for us? Is the Spirit crying out inside of you? If you even now are listening and and you're speaking, you're hearing about adoption, you're crying out, yes! That's that cry. And if you're not, you can repent and believe the gospel, the word of truth that's being proclaimed to you, and you too will receive the guarantee of your inheritance as sons if you believe on Jesus. Sure of who we once were and of what Christ has done, Paul gives his final encouragement. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? 
Notice the language. He gives some really helpful things about even conversion. Formally, this is who you once were, but that doesn't stay the same. If you're in Christ, there is a formally. This is who you were, and now you're something different. But now, he says. So Paul is is contrasting for them. This is who you were. This is who you are. He's giving them a picture of their own conversion. Formerly you lived this life, now you are in this life. And so as Paul is saying, you are no longer these things, he is reminded of his own life that he has been crucified himself with Christ, and that he no longer lives, but that Christ is living in him. And he's saying the same thing of them. Formerly you were this, but now God has changed you and you're something different. You have a new identity now. And he's calling them to live in alignment with that reality. They know God, he says, or rather are known by God. God has set his affection upon them. He set his attention upon them. He chose them. He adopted them. He went after them. And he says that he knew you. And you know him. But they're acting as if they're slaves. Reverting back to the law. Reverting back to paganism. He's saying both of those are the same. You're acting like you're slaves again. Like you want to be a slave once more. Don't turn back that direction. And since that's the case, Paul is so concerned with their actions that he says in verse 10... You observe days and months and seasons and years. They're reverting back to their former days. The way they once were. And Paul says, why are you doing this? The the, the Jewish opponents came in and they they said, you need to practice circumcision and other parts of the law. And so part of that is, is, let's keep this calendar, right? The Jewish calendar, let's do all these things. They didn't do that before. They were Gentiles. They didn't have all this Jewish calendar. That wasn't part of it before. But Paul is saying, if you go back to that, that's the same as going back to your paganism. You're back to enslavement. Which is shocking coming from Paul, who used to carry out that calendar to a T if he could. Now he's saying that's the same as falling back into paganism. It's the same. You're reverting to this former thing. They're leaving justification by faith. And if it's law or if it's paganism, all of it's off. And it concerns Paul to the point where he says, verse 11, that I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Now reverting back to your former way of life and to paganism, that would be labor in vain if Paul had preached the gospel to them and they turned back from that. Going to the law and saying I can be justified in some sense by the law, that's going back and that would be laboring in vain. Paul says if you're looking for justification outside of faith in Jesus, then you are... And my labor has been in vain. Every good coach watches film. And probably hours and hours of film. On their own team, on their opponents. They're finding characteristics of teams so that they know how to defend them or, or to attack them. And I wonder, if, if, our, if our lives were on film, if, if they were played in front of them, and there was somebody analyzing our actions and analyzing everything that was going on, would our actions, would our thoughts, would our desires, would, would our motivations show that we're living more like sons who we are now or that we've turned back and are reverting to our former way of life? What would it say? Are we living more like sons or more like slaves? Paul is watching the film on the Galatians as he hears news of them and, and, and he's concerned. I told you about Jesus and how you could be justified by Him alone. And and now you're trying to add to this in some way. Is there reason for you to have concern of your status based upon the characteristics of your life? If there is, 
It's not my voice that needs to be heard. It's the Spirit's voice. The Spirit always points people to Jesus and saying, there's justification in Him. And if you are a son, that same Spirit's going to be crying out inside of you too, saying, Abba, Father. Let's praise God for that kind of Spirit that's given. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You for sending. Thank You for coming. Thank You for then sending Your Spirit then to live inside of us. God, I pray for believers that that Spirit would be crying out, Abba, Father, now, and would lead them into more and more faithful living before You as true sons. And I pray for those who have not yet believed that the Spirit would be right now lifting up Jesus that they might look upon Him and believe. And God, we we thank You that now we do live in an age of freedom in Christ. That we don't have to turn back to a former way, but we can live as sons. We have access to everything. And there's no greater status than that. May You be praised. And so God, as we join together in song now, May our hearts reflect those realities and those truths. And may you receive glory and honor for it. Thank you for your word. Amen.